Welcome to Office Hours. This is a podcast for students in an online program so that they can have some of the experience of listening to professors talk like you would in a brick-and-mortar institution. Today I have Stephen Gilligan, who is um, probably one of the better-known psychotherapists of this this era, Um, and he's done just a lot of really interesting work. Um, And before we get into all of that, I wanted to start off and I'll let you say hello um, and give a brief introduction about yourself, Steve. Jordan, hi. Uh, great to be here on this sweltering uh, evening. Uh, um, I uh, Let's see, as you say, I'm a psychologist uh, out here in California. I've been practicing as a psychotherapist. Um, also do lots of trainings around the world. Actually, one of my favorite things over the last 15 years is is traveling to many, many different cultures and seeing how this work plays out in different cultures. I was originally, you know, my, my original sort of main mentor was Milton Erickson. So I came into psychotherapy from sort of a, a trance uh, point of view and this sort of notion of creative utilization as as the key relational endeavor. Um, I think over the years, from my connection with martial arts, especially Aikido, and my connection to things like Buddhism, you know, the work has changed to a, a much more focus on embodiment and much more focus on the creative consciousness of the field that's in between people. You know, part of what I mean by that is, you know, usually with trance, you think close your eyes, go away. And, and that, that's a good thing to be able to do, but I think we always should regard it as a special case because really what people are needing is how to connect with others and how to participate in life in the present moment uh, with all of who they are. And so we don't want to primarily focus on going away from the world uh, but how to be able to come into the world with all of your creativity. Wow. So there's so much there. I'm going to pause you and ask if I can go back to something that you said a little bit earlier. Sure. You were talking about um, embodiment and your work with martial arts. And I am not a martial artist. Um, I have read a little bit about martial arts and I think the first thing that really strikes me about what you say and what I know about martial arts is um, it seems that a lot of martial arts traditions do a really good job of embodying the sort of thing that Erickson um, talked about. And it almost feels like a lot of the people who talk about Erickson can get very cerebral, which almost accidentally kills the like experience of it um and so it seems to me that the martial arts is a is is in a and i would almost say any sort of um physical practice where where you're engaging the body and you're having to be present and alert and awake in the moment really really almost gives a, a third dimension, a fourth dimension to this thing that can otherwise be very, very flat. Is that, I mean, right. is, that is that off? Oh, it definitely is not all. Um, I would concur with your sense that most people who talk about Erickson primarily focus on, like, verbal technique and cognitive strategy. And, you know, I, I had the pleasure uh, and luck of meeting him when I was just 19 and so I didn't have that many uh, uh, that many things to unlearn you know professionally and to me what was overwhelming about him from the get-go was it was about 80 80 percent somatic and what he was doing was opening this space beneath words and you know, I think, particularly in the West, uh, particularly in the people who would show up for psychotherapy, 
you you've got these overly verbal people who who in part have been rewarded for thinking verbally and thinking with their intellect but it it really gets them into a lot of trouble in relationships and at times in their life where they have to go through what I would call a death and a rebirth, which I think visits everybody at least a handful of times in their life. And and when we need to make these deep changes, you have you you can't lead with your verbal mind. You you have to be able to get down to the earth and the base of your somatic mind. And so I saw that in Erickson from the get-go, and it was really exciting. I got into martial arts, actually. I mean, I, I loved sports when I was a kid, but I also uh, grew up in an Irish, Catholic, alcoholic, violent family. Some people say that's redundant. Um, and my, my dad, uh, when he was drinking, was pretty violent. And... When I started becoming a young man, I was terrified that, you know, if I felt my anger, I would kill somebody. And I, I felt so shut down that I realized that I, I needed to have some space to work with that. And lo and behold, you know, when I started tuning into that when I was an undergraduate, a buddy of mine said, hey, there's a, a, a Taekwondo, a Korean karate a class uh, at the university, you want to go. And I did, and, and I realized, oh, this is a place for my personal healing and my personal transformation. And so I stuck with martial arts for 26 years, and I, I think it was part of that. It Somatic was never my primary intelligence. You know, reading, uh, thinking, uh, I, I'm totally comfortable with that. So everything I've gotten somatically, I've eked out, you know, through uh, through through a lot of practice. But I do think when people get into the problems that we explore in psychotherapy, first and foremost, there's a somatic disturbance. We we want to create a space where a person feels understood and they feel supported so that they don't have to defend things. And, and then the conversation can really start touching the places that usually are locked or usually a person doesn't feel it safe to uh, be able to represent accurately. And, and that, I think, comes from a, re, a relational connection somatically. That's the base. That's how that's how I do it. That's how I teach it. Yeah, I'm guessing that you know about um, Paul Ekman. I just recently read his book. It was incredible. Um, and I, I do. I I uh, just read his book with the Dalai Lama. Is yeah, really interesting. Yeah. So I read his autobiography, and in that he talks about meeting the, the Dalai Lama. Yeah, by his daughter introduced them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has this experience with the Dalai Lama where just by talking with him, having a conversation, he has this felt sense that the Dalai Lama gets him, that he sees him, and yeah. all this past sort of emotion with his dad is instantly released. It was really incredible to like read. Yeah, I, I think you hear that description frequently about people who really make a difference in the world. That, that they're comfortable within themselves and they know how to extend their spirit out through their embodiment to touch something similar in other people. And, and other people are so appreciative because it's touching what's human and it's bringing what's human into community. And I think at that point... Um, uh, everything can move. And, and, and I think that's trainable to some significant extent, Jordan. The, and I think, I think, you know, I was at, we, we're, we're talking about being at the um, uh, evolution of psychotherapy, and I really liked this 
uh, Congress this time. But I was thinking, the thing, the one thing that I see that isn't that developed in the field of psychotherapy is the whole somatic intelligence piece. I, I think we really can go a lot further. I, I really like what's been happening in the field of uh, trauma, and a lot of the mind-body stuff, and a lot of the focus on listening to the body and listening to the intelligence of the body as it goes through its healing process, rather than trying to program the body or or, or boss it boss it around. So yeah, I I think so. Yeah. But well, this thing about I mean, that's kind of the pathology of the West, right? Always yeah, well, you know, it's, it's how people understand hypnosis is, is that you're, and it's how people, most people understand parenting. You know, you're, you, you have to tell the kid how they're supposed to be. And a lot of, you know, a lot of psychotherapy is organized around that, that you, you have to educate the client into uh, being some in in some improved way, and I think that's part of the problem. What do you think this means for like modern psychotherapy, which is all about evidence based treatment? I think you first appreciate. I mean, I, I saw uh, Salvador Mnuchin, who I think is one of psychotherapy's all time greats, and you may know he. He died at the, what, 95 years old in September. Uh, he's one of the original family therapists. And I saw him in an interview a couple of years before he died. I think it was at the Psychotherapy Networker. He was talking about uh, this movement towards manualized treatment in some quarters. And he was furious. He said, all my life, my professional life, I have worked on developing what might be called the therapeutic use of the cell to enter into people's lives and enter into the communities of people's lives and to awaken through those relationships their humanness. So, you know, when I was coming of age, all the way back in the 70s, that's the 1970s, uh, the, there was a lot of emphasis on that, the, the use of the self. I think with the CBT and all the industrialization of consciousness and the culture at large and 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 then the managed care uh, parts of psychotherapy, this therapeutic use of the self has diminished as as a key variable. But I think that's where you start is how do you make a connection with yourself when you're in a healer role or a therapist role? Um, how do you get grounded in yourself so you can totally open your being to another person without getting wiped out by it? You know, I mean, we have a, a natural fear. If I open my heart to another person's suffering, um, I won't live to see tomorrow. Uh, but that's what we have to do. And, and it starts with a connection to oneself. That's where things like martial arts, I think, have been helpful. Somatic traditions, meditation, um, because they ground you, uh, they teach you how to ground and open at the same time. Then I think the next part of the training is you train people how to open to another person's experience without getting hypnotized by the problem. Because most of us make our living through our mirror neurons, you know, and us therapist types have an overabundance of mirror neurons, which means that when we feel another person suffering, it activates our own suffering, you know, we feel it, but it also gets us locked into my client is their suffering. And so that, that creates a struggle. So when you, the training is... Connect with yourself, then connect to something that is, for lack of a better term, beyond problems, and then start tuning into uh, who your client is. And I think that gives you a base that's big enough and deep enough and differentiated enough. So then you can just open the space for this 
intersectionality of multiple identities. Because everybody's multiple identities. And, and where people are suffering is where some of those multiple contradictory identities are in conflict. They're not in harmony. They're not playing music. They're fighting or they're frozen or one, one's trying to take out the other. And so this, this spatial embodied training, I think, allows you to start making room for the multiple contradictions uh, of identity that a person is struggling with. Mm. Yeah, that, that actually kind of leads into one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Because um, you talk about complementarity, complementarity yeah. a lot, yeah. and to me that rings a lot of congruence, things like that. Uh, and I really like that you use the word harmony, um, because to me I'm I'm a musician, so when I hear harmony, I hear things that are different that sound good together. I hear you. Um, I hear you. They're not. And, they're not necessarily matched. They're. Yeah. They, they, yeah. No. Just, yeah. As a matter of fact, the fact that they don't match is what makes them work. Yeah. I, um, I hear you. And and I like that you use harmony because I think a lot of the time in our field when we're moving towards, most people would say like we need to shoot for congruence. That's kind of what, uh, kind of what the good, the good space looks like. But a lot of the times, one of these things gets either pushed to the side, or it gets uh, invalidated, or something like that. So what, I guess, could you speak to a little bit more of that harmony? Like, how do you take these things that are opposites? I think you talk about them. Um, life goes well when the opposites are in harmony. Yeah, well... I think it was Mozart who said that he was always in search for two notes that were in love with each other. And you hear it among jazz musicians, too. Um, I think, you know, my uh, other mentor uh, back in my university days was Gregory Bateson. And Bateson, of course, is one of the original systems guys. And, and um, he really used to emphasize aesthetic intelligence as the most important type of intelligence in therapy. Aesthetic, and, you know, he came out of, they started with the double bind theory, you know, of how when two things are in conflict, you know, the, the, the uh, so-called uh, double bind message, you know, uh, come closer, a verbal message being contradicted by a nonverbal message. And after that, they they got interested, and this is when they when Bateson's team hooked up with Erickson uh, because they Bateson started thinking, oh, these opposites uh, conflicting with each other—that's a special case. But if you look at all the distinctly human experiences, it's all about multiplicity. So whether it's um, cooking a good meal. You know how do how do you know, how do you know that that the meal is ready? You know you're blending all of these these different uh, flavors and tastes and you know textures and so forth. Um, look at you're talking about music. You know look look at uh, a, a musical group. Um, sports is an obvious um, uh, example for a lot of people. You know sometimes I was just in teaching with a German group, and I, I like to kid them and say, oh, who won the World Cup this time? Was it Germany? <laughs> Get them in a bad mood immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, well, what, what makes for a championship team? It's not everybody is the same. Mm -hmm. you, you actually have all the pieces that are different, and they're looking to balance together. By the way, um, I, I was thinking of Steve DeShazer, you know, who developed the solution focus work and he was his teacher was weakland so he's sort of an indirect student of Erickson and he you know Bandler and Grinder who were my original teachers at 19 that's how I got to meet Erickson 
used to use the idea of pacing and leading. And this thing of, oh, the client you know, does this, so you do that, you match them. And uh, DeShazer was actually a jazz musician. He was a saxophone player. And he said, that case of matching, and sometimes you see it, you know, in the like traditional Rogerian stuff, you know, the client says, makes a verbal statement, you parrot it back. He said, that that's a really, at, at best, a, a very minor case. He said, really what you're trying to do is find something that fits. And when you find something that fits, you know it because the space opens. You know, we know it uh, because we feel we have the experience of resonance. And I think resonance is probably the primary language of therapeutic connection. You're, you're trying to find this connection and, and when it matches, something relaxes, gets warm, and it opens. Mm. One of my favorite activities is reading. And, you know, what I love about reading is I'm, trying, I'm always trying to find the writer's voice inside my, my, my body, usually my chest. And I'm pretty good at it. And at my age, if I, if I don't find it like quarter of the way through, I don't finish the book. But I can find it most times, and it's a beautiful feeling because until that time, I'm struggling. You know, what does it mean? What do I have to remember this? Should I take notes? But when I feel the writer's voice, everything gets quiet, and something drops, and a space opens. And I realize I'm in. I'm in. That we have to talk about this in special ways, I think, tells us how much as a larger community we have fallen into long-term suffering that really is an expression of isolation of apart from the whole. Um, and, and I, I think it's a, actually a convergent idea in depression, certainly in addiction, uh, and anxiety, that these are diseases of isolation, that you feel disconnected. And so we're trying to connect up the dots, basically. And so when you're listening to somebody, you can't be hypnotized to just one part. person says, well, I'm depressed. And you want to invite that, that depressed part to the tea ceremony. But if you think that that's the only identity that that human being has, you're nuts. You know, that person has so many different identities from, you know, what they like to eat when they were five years old to who their family is to the fact, you know, we were just talking before we went on, Jordan is, is the father of a three-month-old uh, those are all different identities. You're talking about being a musician. So it's when one, one part of the system gets functionally isolated, that's where suffering becomes unresolvable. So we're looking to open a conversational space, invite the suffering in, but be really, really curious, who else is this person? Who are they when they're not suffering? Who was their grandparents? Uh, the Golda Meir, who was the uh, former prime minister of Israel, you know, was once asked by a reporter, a reporter said, prime minister, yeah, I'm a regular person. When I have a problem, I can just talk to my friends. But you, you're the prime minister. Who do you talk to? And she said, well, that's easy. She said, when I have a problem, I talk to two people. I talk to my granddaughter, and I talk to my grandmother. My grandmother, who's no longer living, and my granddaughter, who's not yet born. And he said, between the three of us, we figure something out. So connection is the key through suffering back into participation and enjoyment of life. Mm -hmm. It sounds like as you're as you're talking with with people, you kind of drift towards this space in between the parts. That are no, going I start on. there. 
Oh, you start there. I, I don't drift there. I start yeah. there. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think anybody who does creative performance has trained themselves to start there. Mm. You know, how, how do I get into my space where I'm ready? I, I'm feeling connected to the wholeness of the field. And, and then... And then you make room for, oh, there's this piece. Oh, there, that's a resource. Oh, that's a problem. Oh, there's a depression. Oh, there's a, you know, I was just talking with somebody. I had a, a session about an hour and a half ago. Uh, somebody got fired from work. He's 81 years old. And they came in and, you know, he gave 27 years to this company and they threw him out on the street. And uh, it's just, you know, I had this shock and rage. You know, so make room for it. But realize one, once the person feels that you understand that and you support that and you're not trying to change it, you're not trying to get rid of it, then, then you want to recognize we're in a bigger space at the same time. You're 81 years. You've got lots of different identities in there. Let's call them all out in the community. Mm. Yeah. So you start there. Yeah, and whenever you feel stuck, which will happen a hand, at least a handful of times in every session, that's where you go back. Mm -hmm. You realize, you know, we have a saying, if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. The We're talking about the MRI people, the Vosvik, Weakland, Fish, the Bateson Group, who summarized Erickson's work in the principle, the attempted solution becomes the problem, which is when, when people are feeling not right, it's what they start doing to try to get away from it or try to get rid of it that becomes the primary means by which they dig themselves deeper into it. And so I think, and one of the most important tools that I think we can teach people is how to know when they're off center and how to find their center. And, you know, everybody knows their center in different ways. So I, you know, ask people, when you need to reconnect with yourself, what are your, what are the things that, that work for you? You know, somebody I was talking to said, I garden. You know, another person said, I, I cook. You know, another person said, I listen to music. Those are the practices where you get to a deeper than ego, intellect, connection to yourself and to life. Most of the time we think, oh, I can only get there if there are no humans around or uh, if my circumstances are positive. And what we're saying is, no. You can get there anytime, anywhere. You have that power. You have that power. And I would love to explore with you how you can claim that power. Mm. It sounds like you kind of grew with the attachment people that relationships and community are just vitally important, right? That we have a, an internal resource that we need to connect to, but we also have an external resource in terms of like relationships that we have to be tapped into. Is that, is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, and this really interesting, I'm sure you guys are aware of it, this meta-analysis about of the people who get severe, who experience severe trauma. Uh, only about one in five develop long-term PTSD. That, that's less than I thought, you know. And, and then, you know, it's... It is there's some a good question? What is it? What are the people doing that are that are finding not only uh, I'm a survivor, but in some cases even I'm a thriver? And who is it that gets stuck? And one of the main things that uh, determines whether you get stuck in a trauma is whether you had childhood bonding or not. And so if you had some good uh, bonding relationships, 
uh, then you're likely to find your resilience. Interestingly, if your parents, even if you don't know much about it, but if your parents went through a lot of trauma, um, it makes it harder for you to have the attachment bonding and and it makes it harder for you to recover when you, when you really get knocked down hard with trauma. So I think, yeah, you know, and, you know, you've got this other research like showing, you know, kids in very difficult environments, uh, this notion that one of the most significant things, if there's, if there's one adult who really takes an interest in them and really lets them know they're special, that is one of the most significant things that will help that youngster who's in a lot of difficulty to be able to make it uh, and, and go forward in their life. So it's not, you know, it's another way of saying it's about connection. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot there. So much of what you're talking about makes me really think about um, some of the stuff I've read in some of the martial artists, martial art books that I've read, where people take a take a very seriously to ground themselves in their body. Yes. Yeah. Before they go into their performance, um, almost as like there's this ritual that they do repeatedly to get themselves. I hate this language, but into state, into a mindset to be receptive to other people. Um, does that resonate kind of with what you're talking about? Yeah. Just having some sort of ritual that gets you yeah. ready before each client, so that you can be fully present with that person. Is that is that kind of talk? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I totally agree with you. And you know, I think the meditation tradition really helps a lot. Uh, as a tradition, because it's teaching you how to, in Buddhism, they call it keeping your seat. You know, because what what we're exposed to is a lot of drama. And I, I don't mean that cynically, but in the stories that we're confronted with, there's so much, you know. And I think in a good session, you bear witness to the very best and the very worst of humanity. And, and so to bear witness to that in a way that allows you to know and reflect to your clients, there's something deeper than this. It, it obviously starts with yourself, and I think it's a practice. I, it's an interesting question you're bringing up. If you would ask um, other therapists that you're interviewing, uh, do they have a practice before they start a session? Because I do. Yeah. So much of what you're talking about reminds me of um, this book by a guy named Josh Waitzkins called The Art of Learning. And Josh Waitzkins was famous because he was a chess prodigy, so much so that they made a movie about his life called um, Searching for Bobby Fish. He, he moved into Tai Chi push hands, which is like a martial art. And he became world champion in that. And so he wrote this book called The Art of Learning, where he talks about his movement out of chess as a world-class player into uh, Tai Chi as a world-class athlete. And he really delves deep into how you train yourself through rituals to get into states of flow. Yeah, and, and, and the complement of that, which is how to make room for the inevitable chaos that will occur, particularly when you're on a big path. You know, we, we don't want to get, we don't want to think, oh, I just stay centered and I'm in flow 100% of the time. You have to appreciate that those chaoses and getting thrown are really integral parts of, of the creative process. And I mean, if you study really creative people who have long-term sustainable success, it's it's nice to look at both of those. Because the, the stuff that we do to try to get out of that um, unpleasant feeling is where, where we build up a lot of negative consequences that, that then 
can can really start to you know build up. So you know, I think one of the nice things about trance, and it was certainly one of the great things about Ericsson that didn't get translated into like the MRI or a lot of Ericsson students was the pleasure and the importance of not knowing. And, you know, we're in a position as mental health professionals where we're supposed to, we get the idea we're supposed to know. One of my professors at Stanford, Philip Zimbardo, the guy that does, you know, the prison experiments, uh, did this little study when, when I was there in the late 70s on what he called the imposter phenomenon. And, you know, talk to people, particularly professionals, about do you feel like you're a total imposter and you don't know, you really don't know what you're doing and it's just a matter of time before they come to take you away. You know how many people said yes? 80, uh, 87. And, and the other the other 11 were, were found to be lying. <laughs> so, so that sense of including and I, I think this is one of the great uh, errors of our mainstream pedagogical system is we think that knowing is far superior to not knowing and so when we get into those places of not knowing uh, we freak out and and we we try to disconnect from them and remember, disconnection is the root of all evil. That's that's my that's my sermon tonight, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so true, man. And I know for myself, like, whenever I'm able to tap into my community, to my wife, to my son, to my mom, to Ryan, I'm just so much more centered and level-headed and able to just function in life. You know? Yeah, I think so, Jordan. I think so. So, you know, it's, it, it's what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation about the relational space. And you're, I think, just alluding to that in terms of your community, the people that love you and support you. And, and when you remember that and feel that, you can allow yourself to fall apart a lot more. You, you can allow yourself to be whoever you are. And, and, and you don't have to hold it all together just for the sake of holding it all together. And, and so I, I think that's part of what, you know, when we started about the importance of somatic and then relational field, it's about holding that space so people can just let themselves be exactly who they are. Milton Erickson, ironically, the the father of indirect communication, nonetheless astutely uh, uh, noted uh, that neuroses, an old-fashioned term, neuroses is the inability to speak directly. So when you can't say, um, this is who I am, uh, this is my truth, uh, this is my, this is what I need, uh, this is how I experience things. Then again, you have that disconnection between upstairs and downstairs, and and now um, you you don't have your mojo. You know you you don't. I would call the soul ego connection is uh, the elevators aren't aren't going up and down. And that's why I you know I often use my sort of more Irish humor to really sort of emphasize to people that it's much worse than you suspect. You know, and, you know, I say as a licensed psychologist, my diagnosis is you're an incurable deviant. And, you know, say that 90% of the time that you're a total fuck up, you know, and, and I mean that so that people can start accepting that about themselves. And then they know they don't, they don't have to disconnect from all that not knowing and all that stuff that's not ready for prime time and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
then I, then I think you start being able to have freedom. Yeah, I think so much of what you're talking about also connects to um, Joseph Campbell's, you know, uh, the hero with a thousand faces and just how we're all called to be on this adventure, which is life. And we can engage with it or we can let it go. And I watched a documentary with him and he was talking about how the goal of life, the purpose of life is to humanize the system to take this thing that is going to chew us up and spit us out and to make it humane. Yeah, how to, how to, how to heal your brokenness is another way that Campbell talks about it. That how, how to heal the brokenness, not just of yourself, but of the community. He, he, he also, he, we're talking about Joseph Campbell, of course, but he used to say a lot, you know, people say, well, what does that mean? He, he said, life, life is not to be understood. The most important thing is life is to be experienced. You know, that that's the stuff that in the end you're going to be grateful for. You know, when, when you look back, you know, maybe far in the future on your deathbed, but you're like looking back, you're not going to say, I wish I would have worried more. You know, I, I, you know, all, all that worry stuff and trying to impress people, it's all ghost moments. You, you have nothing to show for it in terms of human experience. But, you know, and you hear it, you know, you hear people say this, you know, it's almost a cliche that, you know, in the end, the, what's really important is connection. Now, I think I'm using that word a lot more these days because I think that we, as uh, particularly in America, but all through the world, we are in accelerated disconnection. And it's due to different things. One is the tribes cannot stay separate from each other any longer. You know, it used to be you could stay in your own little group and your own little tribe and live out your life from now. Now, everywhere we look, we've got multiple tribes, multiple identities. And, and I think it's so intense and fast-paced in the, in the general history of consciousness that it's giving rise to a lot of fundamentalism that people are so rigid and they're pulling back and they're going into fear and my my tribe, my way is the only way. I think the other thing that is really significant is social media. I you know, I, I'm I'm a kid from San Francisco in the late sixties and I I never thought I would be sounding like a traditionalist, but the kids today. Um I, I think when we're doing most of our connection, our conversation through computers and through smartphones, it is such a dehumanizing thing that it accelerates alienation and it also accelerates violence. We know from the psychology of violence that the vast majority of people cannot be violent against another being in, until they dehumanize them, you know, and, and talking about it, you know, on the internet, it's, it's a, it's a very, very violent acceleration of what we all know as road rage. You know, if somebody cuts us off and we scream at them, but not now people are, their communities are some people a lot of people, their primary communities are on social media. And I think it's what is giving rise to, for example, the Trump America. You know, n normally I, I have tried to respect what, what I don't know, in mental health world calls the Barry Goldwater principle, which is you, 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 you shouldn't be diagnosing public figures. But there are some people, and I agree with them, who say when somebody is a danger to themselves and to others, you have to speak out publicly about it. 
And I think it's not only what Trump is representing in terms of an extremely dehumanizing form, but the fact that you've got maybe close to 40% who are on that bandwagon. We really have to look at what are the conditions that are creating that. And, and, and I think it's human beings are not connecting to human beings. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, so maybe we should wind it down. Okay. Yeah, we've been rambling on for, what, an hour? Or? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Ryan, anything else you wanted to say? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just letting it all stew right now, yeah. I think. I think I'm in a good spot. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, let me, I guess, ask one final question. What do you think is on the horizon? You know, what's what's in the future? What's coming up next? Where shall people be putting their attention in and their focus? Well, uh, I, I mentioned, I just mentioned in passing uh, earlier in our conversation that I've been doing a lot of work in different cultures, and it has really moved a lot of my focus from doing one-on-one work with people um, to working with communities and to working with groups. And um, I am really excited when I go to all these different cultures to see how much hunger and how much interest there is for working, creating groups, creating communities that are great within themselves and also can make a a positive contribution to to the larger world. Um, I think that's where a lot of the the next generation of focus needs to be because there's so much that is happening at the social level that until we really talk about how to make communities generative, um, where psychotherapy may be missing the boat. Um, When you talk about a generative community, it means that every individual, every member of the group is recognized, is properly named, is valued, is invited to participate, um, and and that's where you start to get those generative phenomena. If if you have a group field without the individual members being recognized, that's what uh, cults are. That's what you know uh, mass hysteria. That's what's happening. I think in a lot of the fascistic movements, you have people longing for participation in something big, but the communities are not making room for the individual spirit and the individual truth of each of its members. So I'm really excited about it. So we have this, we, my buddy Robert Diltz, he and I were, started out in university, you know, 43 years ago. And he, he does a lot of work with entrepreneurs and what he calls next generation entrepreneurs and how to develop entrepreneurship that are vehicles for personal transformation that make contributions to the community and make money. Um, and we're really interested in this International Association for Generative Change, how to bring these principles of creativity not only to individuals, not only to dyadic relationships but to teams and to larger cultures i think it's where the action is at least it is for me mm-hmm. one of the things you're talking about um that keeps coming up as a universal trait of all good therapists is a relentless focus on growth and totally. on positive yeah there's no pathologizing language um yeah on the contrary and Part of it is the role of leadership. You know, I, you, you may know the, uh, the Vietnamese uh, Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, he's one of my sort of heroes. And he, he's, I've heard him say for about 25 years, the next Buddha, the next awakened being, will not come as an individual but as a community. 
So I, I think the, the sort of the days of the superhero may be over. And what we really have to focus on is, is these cr creative communities. Uh, and by the way, you, t you mentioned the word pathological. People outside of the United States accept psychotherapy a lot less than we do here as a vehicle for change. And here, you know, it's also, it's mostly white people. You, you know in the African-American community that psychotherapy doesn't have a strong tradition. As it's partly, I think, because the emphasis is on isolated in, in individualism. I, what people are interested in is creative change and healing and connection and growth. If we primarily focus on pathologizing language or problem-based language, uh, it doesn't meet people's needs. So I have come to see psychotherapy, which I'm proud to be a psychotherapist. I'm, I'm really happy to be part of that lineage. I think of it as a special case. There, there, there are some people who get into certain predicaments where they can't maintain some sort of conscious ego state, even with, even with a little support and assistance. Examples of that might be a severe PTSD or major depression or I think a lot of extreme addiction. Uh, people, you know, you can't trust people's conscious minds uh, when they're severely addicted. In those cases, I think that the training of psychotherapists is, is really, really helpful. But I think it's a special case. Whereas the majority of people, if you want to have conversations for creative transformational change, pathology is a part of the conversation, but it should not be the primary because that's not what is really going to help people to organize to go forward in their life and make positive contributions in their communities. You know, we're, I sometimes say that we're, we're not interested we're not called in when people are struggling with life because struggling with life and having problems is an inevitable part of life. We're called in when a difficult problem becomes an impossible problem. When, when things are shut down, where there's no movement, where there's no hope. And so what we're looking at are what are the contextual conditions that make a difficult problem, you know, like... This guy who I was, I, I was just mentioning, I saw, you know, he got sacked. They, a security guard came and, and hauled him away in front of uh, people he had worked with 27 years. That's a problem. That, that, that's a lot of suffering. What would make it impossible for him to process that through, the grief, the anger, the connection, the et cetera, et cetera, is disconnecting mind-body disconnection and community disconnection. If you can provide those conditions, then suffering becomes a part, an integral part of growth and development. You know, the Buddhists like to say there's joy and there's suffering. Those are the two gateways. And, and we're trying to cultivate what they call equanimity, uh, which is that, that same centered, open-heartedness, clear-mindedness with, with both joy and suffering. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on. I've enjoyed this immensely. Yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure.